moments. Our days are filled with them. Our life is defined by them and history is told through them. Now these moments, they're all around us, right? I mean, there are moments that just kind of pass the time and then there's those moments that are the very best parts of our day. I mean, some moments we create and then there are these other moments that completely catch us off guard. I mean, some moments that we, we, we just can't believe that we were able to experience and be a part of, and then there are the other moments that we regret and they haunt us for the rest of our lives. Sociologists, they tell us that, that we have about eight or nine defining moments across our lifetime. And you know what some of those are, right? Maybe for you, it was when you got married or when you landed that dream job. And for others, it was when a child was born or when you graduated or moved to a new city. Unfortunately, some of these defining moments are the sources of deep pain in our lives, like the loss of a loved one or, or a betrayal or broken relationship. And whatever they may be, we know that in some way, these, these moments, these defining moments, they shape who we are because our life is the sum of the moments that we live. But if moments are, are literally happening all the time, how do we know those moments that, that stand out, the ones that we'll remember for all time and what makes a defining moment? The thing is that we don't know when a defining moment will show up. But what if you knew that there was a moment coming your way where God would meet you in a way that after that moment, nothing would ever be the same. So as we've journeyed through the series called Defining Moments, there was a story of a lady that I'd heard via my mother actually that was at a, another ladies events and she then told me about the story. And um, I tried to track Beryl down um, through trying to find out the name of the lady that spoke at that event. I found a book, and she wrote a book called Marriage Restored. And I had um, a great time sitting through and reading that book. But Beryl has a story, and I think this is a story that will impact uh, many people. I think it is a story that will help us in defining moments in our lives going forward. And I'd like to just welcome Beryl as she comes and shares with us this morning. She, I think, started off as a teacher and now a psychologist. And she has a story to tell today. So why don't you put your hands together as she comes and shares this morning. Good morning. It's a great pleasure to be with you this morning and to share my defining moments with you. Right, and as we were hearing on the uh, uh, short clip of the video just now, a defining moment is something that changes the, the, the pattern, the tra trajectory of our lives. And um, we tend to go in a normal pattern, a normal in, day in, day out routine, and things go along and things go along, and then suddenly something will come along that will completely uh, uproot us. It will create a complete diversion in our lives 
that will change the direction, our thinking, um, our values. So many different things happen when this defining moment comes to us. Um, if we, he mentioned some of them, I actually put them down as well. These defining moments could be such things as starting school for little ones, um, a new job, the loss of a job, getting married, getting divorced, the death of a loved one, an illness or accident, the birth of a child. So there are so many different things that happen that change the, the uh, pattern of our lives. Um, I'm sure that those of you who are parents will remember when your first child was born, you thought, you thought ne life would never be normal again. It's, uh, it completely uh, turned your life upside down, your sleeping patterns, everything. But it was a joyous, defining moment. Um, you can tell from my grey hair that I've had many defining moments. A little while ago, one of my granddaughters said to me, Granny, your face is cracking. <laughs> so I said to her, yes, Juliet, it's because I didn't put on any polyfiller this morning. <laughs> so um, your defining moments are sometimes seen in your face as well. And uh, sometimes when you take a shower, you're glad when you get out of the shower that the mirror's all fogged up. <laughs> but um, anyway, as I say, I've had some defining moments in my life. I will say if I look back, one of the defining moments was accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour when I was 10 years old. I had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home and going to Sunday school. And for those of you who have, I saw so many children here today, it was such a joy. Um, the, 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 the value of, of that upbringing for your children, you can never uh, um, overestimate it. So for me, that was a defining moment. As a child, I, I knew my um, weakness, my sin before God, and our little chorus called How Greatly Jesus Must Have Loved Me was a little chorus that brought me to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. There was a little chorus we used to sing um, in the Sunday school, How greatly Jesus must have loved me, how greatly Jesus must have loved me, to bear my sin in his body on the tree. And that was all the words that touched my heart as a 10-year-old. Then another defining moment was when I was about 15, um, and I was at high school, and I had to decide, was I going to follow Jesus, or was I going to um, go and play outside with the friends, or go to the SCA meeting, or um, make a stand for Jesus, or go with the flow? And at 15, I uh, decided to, to wholeheartedly follow Jesus, and I was baptized. Another defining moment was my marriage in, at 21. Um, lots of defining moments in the 20s and 30s. The birth of four children. We've got two boys and two girls. Well, they're not boys and girls anymore, of course. Um, and eight grandchildren. <laughs> so we've been blessed by the Lord in, in that. But they were all defining moments in our lives. But Paul has asked me to share in particular this morning about one defining, well, a defining moment. And I've uh, broken it up into three sections, into three phases. 
And um, the first defining moment, it happened when I was in my 50s. Um, and I'm, I've uh, labeled the first defining moment rejection. And just to, I'm just going to read to you how, how this felt for me. Been married for 36 years. The love of my, the love between my husband and myself, my husband's name's John, was absolutely solid and unquestionably deep, sure, and steadfast. Our marriage was a safe haven. We sheltered there together when the storms threatened. We were honest, open, and vulnerable with each other. We had become one in every sense. Our family felt completely secure in the marriage building we had established together. For 36 years, we had been pillars of the community. We had attended Bible college and served the Lord in ministries such as Sunday school and church leadership. And John was an elder in our church. The first few years of the new millennium had been busy ones for us. I was overloaded. I had just completed a degree and I'd started uh, a job as a psychologist, which was a huge learning curve. And, but I'd noticed that John was preoccupied, distant, and somewhat irritable. This was unlikely, unlike him, as he had always been practical, affectionate, and protective. But we were both tired. And so I was glad when one Friday evening in October 2003, he suggested that we go out for dinner. Great, I thought. That will give us an opportunity to talk about reprioritizing our activities, lives, and values. We need to get off this treadmill. So I was totally unprepared for what transpired that night. We had just finished the main course and ordered dessert when John dropped the bombshell that shattered my world. I want a divorce, he said. My heart dropped like a lead ball into my stomach. My face was drained of all color and my breathing became shallow. I was overcome with nausea and choking. I'm going to be sick, I said. I left the restaurant and went outside. There I paced up and down, up and down, in absolute panic. And all I could do was repeat, oh God, please help me. And so began, and so began the first defining moment, the moment of rejection. The next few months were a nightmare, a roller coaster road of reaching heights of hope that things would work out and plummeting into depths of despair. But then about three or four months later, my worst fears materialized and John left to embark on his new life with someone else. I firmly believe that our God allows us to go through trials to conform us more to the image of his son. But that doesn't always make it easy. Desertion ripped my heart out and left an aching, gaping hole. For months I could feel the raw, searing pain in the hollow where my heart had been. Yes, the pain was physical. My life disintegrated. My mind, previously well-organized, became chaotic and obsessive. Every word that was spoken was played over and over and over in my head. Every conceivable reason 
was examined and re-examined. Why, why, why? Previously healthy habits such as eating and sleeping were lost overnight. Sometimes I would get a few hours sleep, but then I'd wake up in the early hours of the morning in torment. The crying was interminable. The agony and anguish caused emotional paralysis. I could identify with the words of C.S. Lewis on the grief of his death of his beloved Helen. This strong Christian fell headlong into the vortex of whirling thoughts and feelings and dizzily groped for support and guidance in the deep, dark chasm of grief. It was unbelievable, the pain, particularly if you've come from the background where you saw, think it will never happen to you. And I know that there are people here today that have experienced that pain. You have been through the pain of rejection, desertion, abandonment, divorce, abuse. And I want you to know that there's only one place to turn, and that's what I did. In my distress, I sheltered in the cleft of the rock. I called out to God to deliver me. At times, my pleas for divine help were even for death. Thoughts of suicide are not uncommon to those in this distress. I planned it, but God prevented it. So I turned to him even more, and in my distress, I turned to the Psalms. Now, when you have a problem, when your life is in difficulties, turn to the Psalms. We've been reading the Psalms this morning. Two, two um, um, Paul did, and the uh, other gentleman did as well. John. <laughs> and John did as well. And that's where we get so much comfort. And in Psalm 6, verses 2 to 4, I would call out, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony, because that's what it feels like. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. And with David, I could testify, as John, the same verse, said, um, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And that's where there is refuge and fortress in your deepest sadness, your deepest tragedy, your deepest trauma. You can rest in the shelter of the Almighty, in the shadow of the Almighty. He cares. He loves. He died to save you. He lives to keep you. And that is where we find our solace. So this rejection resulted in a new pathway. It changed my life completely. It brought a lot of negatives. The first that I had to overcome with the help of the Lord, the first negative was shame. I was so ashamed that our marriage that had been so ostensibly secure had now crashed and crumbled. There was guilt. What had I done that had contributed to this? There was loneliness. 
And those of you who are recently bereaved or, um, or recent, suddenly single, um, my sister lost her husband about uh, two months ago, and she said exactly the same thing that I felt then. She said, I get so lonely when I see other couples together holding hands. And I thought, that's exactly it. It's the loneliness of no longer being together. Um, there was fear, fear of the future, fear of how I was going to manage. There was depression. And there was also sin. You see, um, James, in his epistle, he, he, he talks about the fiery trials we have to face. I have, now, I've often wondered why he talks about um, temptations and trials in the same chapter. If you read James chapter 1, there's, he talks about trials and he talks about temptations. Well, I found out why. Because when you're going through a trial, that's when temptation is so much stronger. And I think my biggest temptation during that time was to talk too much. And that is where um, God put his finger and said, you know, the, 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 the tendency to talk is to try and justify yourself, try and make yourself feel better, try and make the other person look like the baddie. And God said to me through someone, he said, Beryl, make sure you have clean hands and a pure heart. And as I realized that I had to control my tongue, I made the words of Psalm 19. Once again, we're back to the Psalms. Psalm 19, verse 14, my motto. And this was, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I used to say that every morning when I woke up because I was responsible for my words, for what came out of my mouth. And it was only by the grace of God that, and with God's help that I was able to deal with that temptation. Um, when one loses a, a, a partner through death or divorce, I think there's, there's three different reactions that, that people sometimes make. The, the one is to restore, to get that person back. The other one is to replace, get somebody else. And the other one, it just slips my mind now, restore, replace, or reject, to reject the, the other the person that rejected you. And the temptation that, well, it was, it was an, an, not, I wouldn't say it's a temptation, but it was a, a desire. My desire was restoration. I didn't want to reject John, and I didn't want to replace him. I wanted him restored. And so this became my deepest prayer as I walked this journey on this pathway. In order to get there, I needed to learn to pray. To pray like I had never prayed in my life before. Old Helsby has said, only he who is helpless can truly pray. That was what drove me to my knees. I could not fix it. 
So I took my brokenness to the one who could redeem and restore. What I didn't know is whether he would. And if so, when? And so that led to having to trust. Now, trust is a difficult thing sometimes. You know, I've, uh, you know there's a, a song we used to sing years ago. Um, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And you know, I found obedience a lot easier than trust. Because obedience is doing something. God said this, okay, so obey it, you do it. Trusting is not doing something. It's letting go. It's leaving it to someone else. Leaving it to the Lord. And you have to trust the Lord. And so often um, I say to myself in just daily things, if you can trust God to save you from hell and give you salvation, why can't you trust him for the little things in life? Why can't you trust him for your daily needs? And it's a continual challenge to trust and obey the Lord in all of the things. And so um, I learned to pray. I learned to trust. And I learned of God's love. Jerry Bridges has written, It is often in the midst of our adversities that we experience the most delightful manifestations of God's love. God's unfailing love for us in an objective fact, affirmed over and over in the scripture. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith create it. I have a friend at present who's going through a very difficult time with her husband's health. And she says, but I feel like I'm praying, Lord, get us out of this. When is this going to end? But my prayers don't reach the ceiling. Our doubts don't destroy God's love. And our faith, believing that it will happen, doesn't create it. God's love is in his very nature. It originates in the very nature of God who is love, and it flows to us through our union with his beloved Son. But the experience of that love depends on us believing and trusting in him. His love exists, but how do we experience? Only if we place our faith and our trust in him. And so God showed me his love in many ways. He showed me his love through God's people. I belonged to a church family that, um, that supported me. And so I encourage you too, for those among, that you know amongst you who are going through hard times, whatever their defining moment may be, support them. You, do, you are the hands and the feet of a loving Heavenly Father. And we, when we're in a dark place like I was, we so desperately need those hands and feet. We need the arms of God's children around us. So I, God showed his love through his people. God also showed his love for me 
through his provision. And God cares for widows and orphans. And as, my, as someone said to me, Beryl, you are in the same position as a widow. You have been abandoned, left alone. But God cared for me. Here are some of the ways that the Lord laid a table for me. John put our family home up for sale. Every offer that was made fell through. By delaying the sale of our house, God provided me with a monthly income. In terms of the divorce agreement, I was to receive a monthly maintenance allowance until the house was sold. Regarding accommodation, God's timing was perfect. One of our children had a vacant townhouse for me to rent. And so I had comfortable and familiar accommodation without the responsibility of a big family home. The Lord placed his hand over my... Oh, um, Paul mentioned that I was a teacher and then a psychologist. Well, I, be, I was a teacher. I was a, a teacher for until about 95. And then um, I decided to, to, to branch out into educational psychology, but then I really went into counseling psychology. And as I said to you, the beginning of the, the new millennium was a great learning curve for me. And so um, I, I was very busy. But when this happened, and my, as I read to you, my whole life collapsed inside, I couldn't be a psychologist anymore. I said, no, I can't help other people when I actually am such a mess myself. So God provided for me. I, um, um, we, we had a little cottage at St. Michael's on Sea, and, and we sold that, and... Um, John said I could have that as part of the, the settlement, the divorce settlement. And I took that and I, built, uh, I bought um, properties in Windsor East. So I bought my first property in Windsor East and renovated it and sold it. And God blessed that business. And so for about five years, um, in the early part of the, the um, 2000s, I um, bought and renovated and sold properties in Windsor East, which was a tremendous therapy for me because I was renovating things that were in need of repair. And that is it's an analogy, too, of what was happening in God was doing in my life. He was repairing. He was restoring. He was restoring what was in my life. And so I come now to the second defining moment, which I have called um, renewal and relinquishment. Initially, I wanted my marriage fixed and fixed immediately, fixed before there was any separation, but fixed before anyone knew about it. I wanted our reputation intact and my dignity preserved. God did not do this. So I tried to fix it with letters, pleadings, reasoning, presenting scripture. Nothing worked. So I employed God, implored God to intervene, giving him suggestions as what to do about it. What audacity. I kept reminding God about Romans 12, verse 19. Do not take vengeance, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So I, want, I said, God, you said that, so now you do it. 
But I should have turned the back a few pages to Romans chapter 9, verse 15, which says, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's ways are so much better than ours. He will not crush the, he will not break the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He will not, he will not snuff out. He has, he loves the sinner. He loves everyone. He loves those that, that have, have erred, and he loves those that are hurt. So humanly speaking, we resist the suffering we go through. I know, I've been there. We wrestle with God to remove our cup of suffering. We plead with him to restore what we've lost. I long resisted the ending of my marriage. Even after the divorce had been finalized, I continued to pray persistently, sensing confirmation from God that I must persevere. The scripture says pray without ceasing. But people were saying to me, it's time to move on. But God, I said, eventually I said, I didn't know what to do, you know. So I asked the Lord, and in through the scripture, he showed me that I must persevere until he told me to stop. Then came the day when I heard that John was to remarry. That was the day I finally laid my Isaac on the altar. I clearly remember kneeling next to the sofa with my hands open to heaven and committing my life and my future to God, no matter the direction. In my open, outstretched hands, I lifted up John to him. I handed him over to the providence of a loving, wise, sovereign God. <coughs> my relinquishment released the Holy Spirit to work through the power of prayer. And so I come to the third defining moment. And this one I'm going to call reconciliation. We had been divorced for over a year and separated for nearly two years when late one Friday evening I received a call from John saying he wanted to see me. This was one week before I was about to go to the UK to take care of my granddaughter so that my daughter could go back to work. I had heard that John was going to remarry, as I'd said, and I had laid my Isaac on the altar, and I was looking forward to new things in the UK. So when John phoned and told me that he was not getting married, I dared to hope that he wanted a reconciliation. As when he came over, his first words to me were, I never stopped loving you, and I knew that my prayers and the prayers of so many of God's people had been answered. So God, in his time, brought John back to me. He brought him back because of God's love, because of his faithfulness, because of his answers to prayer. But God also, we also have human responsibility. God is sovereign but he gives us responsibility. And, and a remarriage should always be based on two things in particular, repentance and forgiveness. It was my responsibility to forgive. Now, forgiveness is difficult. When someone has hurt you so deeply, Forgiveness is difficult, but as believers, we have a mandate to forgive. 
Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances, and I thought there were more than grievances, that you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And those verses are just a two of the ones that, God, that we have in the scripture about forgiveness. Now, the subject of forgiveness is a whole sermon on its own. And um, I'm not going to, to go into the whole subject of forgiveness, but from a practical point of view, forgiveness is sometimes very difficult. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And that is what we always have to remember, is that we are only sinners saved by grace. Each one of us, no matter on which side of the fence we are, we are sinners saved by grace. And, God, and, we, might, and we have to learn to forgive. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a decision. Forgiveness is a lifelong commitment. Forgiveness is something you might have to do over and over again. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I wouldn't be standing here today if I'd forgotten. It's not forgetting. God um, puts our sins as far as the east is from the west, and we say he remembers them no more. He doesn't forget them. He chooses not to remember them. And so, too, we have to choose not to remember And so we need God's help daily in forgiveness. Then the other thing I mentioned was repentance. Now, our, um, our, when John asked me to marry him again, um, I was so ecstatic about it, and uh, people thought we were rushing into it, because I went overseas to, my, to look after my granddaughter, but I just stayed there for two months until she could find some alternative arrangement to come back here to get remarried to John. But there are stages that one needs to go through in a reconciliation or a remarriage. And the first one is true repentance. Now there's a difference between regret, remorse and repentance. Regret is when you're sorry for what you've lost. Remorse is, sorry, is when you're sorry for the damage you've caused and the guilt you feel. But repentance is before God and before man that you, will, that you, are, you have admit that you have, have sinned and that you um, uh, turn around 180 degrees. And when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, that's what we do. We turn around 180 degrees. We say, Lord, you died for me. You took my sin in your body on the tree. And I am going to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. And there needs to be true repentance. There needs to be confession. There needs to be talking. Um, <clears throat> and there needs to be to be an, a lot of unpacking of what went wrong. We skipped some of these things, and 
in hindsight, it wasn't a good idea because the remarriage was not always that easy. I had problems then with trust. You see, if there's not true repentance, you never know whether the person is going to go back to the old ways. It doesn't matter what the, what the situation is, whether it's an addiction or whether it is another person. If there's no true repentance and confession of sin, there's no guarantee that that person is not just regretful and remorseful and will turn back to their, their old ways. But God in his grace and mercy has helped me to, um, uh, to learn slowly to trust. That's been more difficult than forgiveness for me. And so hedges have to be built around the new marriage and commitments have to be made to God, to covenantal marriage and to marriage vows. If a second marriage, a remarriage, is going to succeed. We have got a good second marriage. It's different to the first in that I'm probably more independent than I was in the first marriage. I, in the first marriage, I was brought up understanding without being a doormat what submission meant, that the husband was the head of the home. In the second marriage, I think I have become more independent, more listening to God than listening to man. And I've had to become independent because uh, uh, God saw fit five years ago to, um, for John to, to suffer from hydrocephalus. Now, hydrocephalus has many... Uh, um, uh, symptoms, well not many, it's actually uh, it's got some, some symptoms. It's called normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is different to the hydrocephalus in babies. When babies get hydrocephalus, their heads um, are swollen. With um, older people, uh, it's called normal pressure hydrocephalus, and it's water on the brain that affects the brain. So it's affected, it affects, it's affected John's brain in various ways. Firstly, he is now no longer able to walk. So he's very much in a wheelchair. And secondly, he has the early stages of dementia. He's, he's very loving. He's very considerate. He's not difficult. So marriage, the Lord has been good because our marriage is, 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 is harmonious. We don't argue or fight or have any of those unnecessary things. Be, and, and he's very grateful. He tells me every day how much he loves me. I think it's easier for a man to say he loves you than to say he's sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, but God has now given me this situation. And I look at this situation and I say, what now is my role. And my role now is acceptance. Acceptance tells us that the past is over. The present and the future we once envisaged are not to be. Acceptance reminds us that this cannot be changed no matter how strongly we feel about it. Or even if we could make 
the offender's life miserable. Acceptance and living in reality keeps us from falling into the inner prison formed by those images of what was or what might have been or the if-onlys. Acceptance doesn't mean always being content and happy. Realistically, there will be days when pain surfaces. But there is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away. But until that day, we can choose to make our lives count for God. We can rest in the assurance that he will never fail us or leave us, but will work all things out for our good. And so I can say, as, as I am on the road of acceptance, I'm not always there. There are some days when I think, if only. But I'm on the road to acceptance. Some of the wounds haven't healed completely, and there are scars which remain as constant reminders. I look at our second marriage, and it has been good, but I do have a deep sadness about what happened. And that's one of the consequences. There are consequences, and there are many other consequences that I'm not going to go into, but there are consequences. And so I would say to you, particularly if you are facing adversity, we are tempted to question God's love for us. We are tempted to believe in God's sovereignty, that he's in control, but not in his goodness. Why, Lord, why? We can be assured by the evidence of God's love at Calvary that God is perfect in love and abundant in goodness. This 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God always knows what's best for us, even though he does not spare us affliction. We may never understand why, but we can trust that he knows what he is doing. And so I'd like to end by reading a little poem. Um, I think it's written by Corrie ten Boom. It's called The Tapestry Poem. And I'm sure some of the older folks will have heard this um, in years gone by. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Thank you.